The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Let us listen now to the story of that morning as recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, beginning with the first verse. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They'd been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God, for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Silence and fear. The, the Gospel of Mark does not end properly, not with a satisfying punchline, not with a happily ever after, not with a clear period at the end of a final triumphant sentence. Mark trails off silence and fear dot, dot, dot. That's Mark's approach to Easter. Early in the morning, as he tells it, the women came to the tomb. They brought supplies to anoint the body of their friend. They, they planned to wash dried blood off his face, to pull thorns from his brow, to comb out his hair. Slipping quietly through shadowed streets, Mary Mary and Salome come to visit some final kindness on Christ's broken frame. Arriving at the cemetery, though, the three discover that the grave they intend to visit has been disturbed. The stone has been rolled away. A young man, robed in white, sits on the slab where the body of their friend was last seen. Do not be afraid, says this luminous figure. 
You are looking for Jesus. He's been raised. He is not here. Go tell the disciples, tell Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. On hearing this, the good book tells us the women fled from the tomb. And that's how Mark concludes. Tom Long suggests that a literal translation of the final sentence in this gospel ought to read like this. To no one anything, they said, afraid they were for. Mark's strange syntax makes him sound a lot like Yoda. Afraid they were. Who ends a sentence, a novel, the greatest story ever told with the word for? Afraid they were for... For what? Come on, Mark, did, did you run out of ink? You, you hooked us originally in chapter 1, verse 1. You had such a, a powerful beginning. This is the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is it too much to ask that you would give us a little closure here at the end? Now, if you're fact-checking me, you might want to interrupt about now. Wait a minute, preacher. Uh, my copy of Mark does continue. It goes on for another 12 verses. What are you talking about? And this question pulls us into one of the most fascinating areas of New Testament study, manuscript analysis. Really? Paleographers study how ancient documents got copied and shared. They follow the trail of our sacred texts through history. And the way that their logic goes is something like this. Mark initially wrote down the story of Jesus. Mark ended that story in chapter 16, verse 8. Now, people found Mark's story of Jesus to be interesting and powerful, and, and learned individuals began to make copies of Mark's manuscript. They passed these copies around, and all the earliest copies we have of Mark end at verse 8. Later manuscripts, though, manuscripts produced years after the original, include more material. <laughs> They add a shorter and then a longer ending to the gospel. Bibles often print these additional segments with, with footnotes next to them. Where did these endings come from? Well, scholars explain they probably came from individuals who did not like the abrupt conclusion of Mark. Personally, I blame the monks. The, the scribes, the, the human Xerox machines who labored to preserve and share these manuscripts. A, at some point in this process, while, while finishing a copy of, of a Mark manuscript, some monk thought, you know, this story really needs a better ending. <laughs> uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, they have much stronger finales. Easter ought to be more than, than three women sprinting from the tomb in fear. Uh, this monk believed that he could fix Mark, so he added a few more verses. 
And later another monk thought, I can do better than that. And he added an even longer conclusion. Does all this fiddling with endings in the holy book surprise you? Probably not. It's what we humans do. Case in point, the cinema. When Hollywood feels nervous about how a new movie will be received by the public, they pre-screen the film. They show it to a test audience. After watching, the test audience says what they like and what they do not like about the movie. These pre-screening crowds are often critical of the way in which films end. When the sports comedy Dodgeball was pre-screened, the test audience grew furious. The film ended with an underdog team of dodgeball players, the Average Joes, losing to a team captained by a jerk. The test audience wanted the Average Joes to win and the team of bullies opposing them to lose. So the director went back to work and when the movie was finally released in theaters, it had a new ending. Lo and behold, the average Joes triumphed. We want neatly tied up conclusions, Hollywood endings, proper closure to our stories. In his commentary on Mark, New Testament scholar Don Jewell tells the story of a student who memorized the entire gospel in order to do a series of dramatic Broadway-style readings before live audiences. After careful study, the student decided to conclude with Mark's original ending to stop his recitation at verse 8. At his first performance, when the student spoke this ambiguous final verse to no one anything, they said, afraid they were for, his voice trailed off. The audience stared, waiting for more, wanting this performer to provide a, a proper finish. Finally, after several anxious moments, he said, Amen, and made his exit. The relieved, applaudience, uh, the re relieved audience applauded wildly. L later, though, the student felt unsettled. He felt as if he'd caved, like he tidied up something that did not want to be tidy. He, he worried that he gave closure to a story that did not want closure, not at all. Literary theorists have a name for moments in literature that resist closure. They call it aposiopasis. It, it's a term that literally means to become silent. Aposiopasis happens a lot in literature. When a character is, is speaking and trails off into silence, uh, unable to complete her thought, that is aposiopasis. In, in Shakespeare's tragic play, King Lear is overcome with anger at his oldest daughters. He rails at them, no, you unnatural hags, I will have such revenge on you that all the world shall. Lear 
never finishes that sentence. We're left to imagine those terrible revenge plots, or at least to wonder why the ruler could not complete his thought. Was, was Lear unable to come up with something sufficiently horrible, some torture that could satisfy the pain welling up in his heart? Or, or was Lear pausing, suddenly aware of his own words? Was the king suddenly wondering, what leads a man to pray that calamity will rain down on his own children? Writers like Shakespeare use aposiopasis all the time. In speaking their minds, in telling their truths, characters stop in the middle of a sentence. They leave readers in a silent space, wondering what might have come next. These silent spaces take us back to Mark. On Easter, Mark leaves us without a big finish without a trumpet blast, without an angel declaring victory for all the average Joes of the world. Mark doesn't even give us a good solid amen. Instead, the gospel trails off in aposiopasis. Jesus is in Galilee. The women are afraid. That's it? That's the end? How the heck is that Easter? In recent years, a number of churches across the country have embraced a quirky and glitzy way to begin their Easter egg hunts. They kick off Holy Week parties by hiring a skydiver dressed in a bunny suit to parachute onto the church's lawn. Uh, the Wall Street Journal quotes one of the pastors at these churches uh, from a church in Laguna Hills, California, saying, we couldn't think of a more exciting way to start Easter. The fellow gets points for honesty. In a way, modern clergy are, are like the monks of old. We, we stare anxiously at the ancient manuscript under our nose and think, this is not a good ending. This picture of Easter is not encouraging enough, not flashy enough. We, we need brighter colors, airplanes, fuzzy costumes. We need trumpets. We need a big finish. We need to fix Mark's gospel. Why did Mark leave us in this awkward place? Why in the world does he let his words trail off? Curiously, I think we know the answer to this question. Mark's unfinished sentence of an ending tells the truth. The gospel acknowledges something simple, something basic, something we already know. Easter doesn't fix everything. Easter doesn't take away all the political infighting, all the race-on-race -race violence, all the suffering, all the aching, all the loss, we know this. We who have spent two Easter's traveling the length and breadth of this pandemic know this all too well. Easter is, is not the party at the end of the movie. 
It's not heaven's final triumph over evil. It's not the period at the end of God's last sentence. It's something different, something quieter, something incomplete that beckons to us. It's a promise whispered to tired ears, scraped up souls, and broken hearts. Easter is what happens when a young fellow says, Jesus has been raised. He's not here. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's gone on ahead of you to Galilee and there you will see him. Easter, my friends, is watching that news wash over the faces of three women. Women who can hardly process it. Women who've watched their friend, their teacher, their Lord walk through hell. Women who know just how hard life can be. Mark tells us these women's stomachs churn with wonder and fear on hearing this news. Of course they say nothing to anyone. How, how do you process resurrection? How, how do you put words to the crazy possibility that, that Jesus is back? That he's out there in Galilee, back doing what he was doing when people first met him, teaching about love, healing souls, casting out demons. Mark honors the silence of the women on Easter in the face of this news. He, he invites us to stand alongside Mary and Mary and Salome in this quiet moment. He does this because he knows how sick we all are of worthless words piled on top of more worthless words. Uh, Mark won't sully this story by resorting to rhetorical tricks or bluster. He won't pile whipped cream on top of this reality-splitting news. Jesus is on the loose, says the young man in the cave. And then fear, awe, and silence. The gospel invites us into this silence to linger in Easter's quiet. Mark gives us permission to contemplate the faces of those three women and to hear nothing. Nothing but soft bird song in the dawn's light. Mark knows the power of silence the sacred way that quiet works on us, its potential to, to free things in us, its ability to surface sighs that are drowned out by this loud, loud world. In the quiet of Easter, something stirs in us. In the silence of Easter, our desire for God for more God, for nothing less than God, grips us. In the silence of, of Easter morning, we squeak out the truth. 
deep down we miss God. We're lonely for God. We're desperate to get some God, real God, in our lives. We want God to be present to us the way Jesus was present in Galilee. Present in the gathering of friends, the, the breaking of bread, the telling of stories. Easter's quiet doesn't want us to say amen and applaud God's performance. Easter's quiet tugs at us turning our eyes back toward Galilee, back toward the place where God's beloved Son is at work, back to all the ordinary places where God waits for us. What will happen there? Well, Easter makes you wonder. It makes you wonder about those monks who who took liberties and, and added their own stories to the end of Mark. It, it makes you wonder if they understood the gospel better than anyone. To run in, in, in fear and awe to Galilee, to look for Jesus, to find him there casting out demons, healing division, binding up human brokenness. Is this not what Easter wants of us? Is this not what Mark's silence beckons us to do? To pick up a pen like the monks of old and to add our own ink to the good book's resurrection accounts. Isn't Easter your invitation to run to Galilee and finish the story? My friends, our Lord has gone ahead to Galilee, as promised. He waits for you there. So have courage this Easter. Be like the monks of old. Take pen and ink, track the risen one down, and write a resurrection story. There are so many to be told. After all, Jesus is on the loose. Hallelujah.